This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Please remain standing and let's uh, hear the word of the Lord and a reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. If uh, you care to use one of the Bibles we provide, at this page 1015. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're in verses 13 through 17, though I'll begin reading at verse 11, where we were last week, verse 11 and 12. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God Honor the emperor. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Would you have a seat then? Thank you. Well, to remind you of where we've been in, in the uh, book of First Peter, uh, Peter has moved from look what God has done. Look what he's done for us in his grace and mercy and love to how then shall we live? How shall we live in light of all of God's mercies towards us? <clears throat> and first, he told us that we should proclaim His excellencies. Tell the world what God has done in your life through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell others about the forgiveness of sins that comes by grace through faith. That was the first thing. And then in verses 11 through 12, he presented his overall strategy uh, for the Christian life in response to God's grace. And it was, if you were here last week, you saw it was a call to live the pilgrim life. What Peter was saying, in essence, was that, listen, you live as a Christian now in a God-rejecting world, a Christ-denying world, and you are in this world still, but you are no longer of it, spiritually speaking, you see. And the people who surround you are still in the darkness of spiritual blindness and spiritual death. And you, you're different now. You've been called out into the light of spiritual life in the Lord Jesus. And, and so things are going to be different. And you need to understand how to live in such a context. You're going to need to expect some things to change. You're going to need to expect that there's going to be opposition. There's going to be clashes between you and people in the darkness. There'll be accusations. They'll be calling you evildoers. There'll be rejection. It may even come from your family. And you need to also understand there will be temptations, and they'll come from yourself, from your own heart. And so to live the pilgrim life, you need to recognize this and you need to do three primary things. We saw them last week. First of all, embrace your identity as sojourners, as aliens, as people who are passing through in this world. Embrace that identity. Secondly, engage the battle against your own lusts that wage war against you. Be awake about this. Identify the idolatries of your heart and so forth. We looked at that last week. And then last week, lastly, Live good, honorable lives in the midst of these people of the world that some might see your good deeds and they may come to glorify God. 
I'll be that on the day of visitation. We talked about what those things mean. And so that's as far as we got last week if we were here the, through verses 11 and 12. And then the, the, the next question that naturally follows would be, well, then how exactly shall we live these good lives that others might see and glorify God? How exactly might we do that? And so Peter is beginning to answer this question in greater detail now. Um, he addresses how believers are to relate to the unbelieving world in the three major spheres of life in relation to the state or government, in relation to the workplace, business, we would say today, and, and in relation to family. How are we to live in such a way that others might glorify God in those three spheres of life. And the main idea that he focuses on, the main principle, is submission. Submission. The ESV uses the word subject, but is speaking about submission. Now, I want to underscore immediately that we need to understand what Peter's saying in the setting in which Peter is speaking and in the setting in which the people who are reading this were living. Peter has in mind not just sort of biblical principles, but he has in mind people who are living in the midst of opposition, people who are experiencing uh, oppression and difficulty for their faith, and how to relate to unbelievers in each of these spheres of life. He's not talking about necessarily how to relate to other Christians in the workplace and in the society and in your family, but how to relate to unbelievers. Remember the context of what he's, these people are experiencing. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, You have been grieved, deeply grieved by various trials. In chapter 4, uh, verse 12, he will later say, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So this is the setting in which Peter speaks of how to, to relate uh, to unbelievers in the midst of those three different spheres of life. Uh, they are exiles, and they need to remember that. They are sojourners, and as such, they do not fit in. That's the, that's the setting I want you to keep in mind. And as a result, Peter knows, because he himself has already experienced this, he, Peter knows that they will suffer unjustly. They will suffer uh, unjustly in each of these spheres of life. And so in the middle of this next section, which goes all the way through most of chapter 3, by the way, the three spheres uh, of life, in the middle of this section, knowing that they will suffer unjustly, and what he's telling them is to submit themselves uh, to these various structures of authority, he elevates Jesus as the grand example for them. Who was treated unjustly more than the Son of God, you see? And he said he has suffered unjustly, and he's done so to be an example for you. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. When I follow my Savior, who left me an example, who took the cross and so forth, see. And so he places that suffering of Christ right in the middle of his discussion of submit yourself, knowing you will be unjustly uh, treated by others. And so... This is what Peter expects of believers, of Christians. Why, that's what Christian means, doesn't it? Little Christs. Little Christs who therefore experience what Christ experienced. Uh, we will suffer uh, unjustly for righteousness' sake. He will say in chapter 3, 14, those very words, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And he doesn't divorce this from the sovereignty of God. He believes it is the plan of God. Chapter 4, 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while still doing 
good, <laughs> you see, which of course is exactly what our Lord has done on our behalf. And so, so where did Peter begin? How are we to live in a world like this? <laughs> How are we to live? Well, he begins. He begins by addressing how we, we Christians who are the citizens of heaven are to relate to the governing powers of this world, the rulers of this world. To borrow from Augustine's phrase, how are we who are citizens of the city of God to relate to the city of man, you see? Because as Christians, we alone in this world have dual citizenship. <laughs> we are citizens of heaven, and we have our highest, our highest commitment, our highest faithfulness, fidelity to our King, the Lord Jesus. Oh, worship the King, we sang together. But we are also citizens of the city of man. What obligations do we have as Christians? In the city of man. That's what he's talking about first. And what Peter teaches us this morning in these verses is Christians, Christians live good lives that others might glorify God by submitting to civil authority. And so I'm launching on all of your favorite subject this morning, aren't I? Yeah. See, that's one of the benefits of expositional preaching. You, you cover passages that others will just skirt by. <laughs> Yes, we, we honor God. We, we live l good lives in relation to the city of man by submitting to governing authorities for the glory of God. Now, I know some of you are looking at your outline and you see six points and you're shaking right now. <laughs> Listen, let me say to you, we'll make it, okay? So I want to look at this concept of submission Six different angles just to make sure it's really clear today, okay? So first of all, the meaning of submission. Uh, submit, submit is a dirty word to Americans. <laughs> uh, it's a dirty word in the land of the free. And not only that, but we live in an extremely anti-authoritarian time. It may be a dirty word to us, but listen, it is a favorite of Peter's. <laughs> In fact, it dominates, really. It's at the center of the rest of this letter. It's used here in chapter 2, verse 13, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 5, verse 22. And then in relation to church, he uses it in chapter 5, verse 5. Submit, 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 submit. All these times he will say through the rest of this letter. And what does he mean? Well, it's a military word, meaning to put oneself under another in rank. Place yourself under another one in rank. Align yourself under this one. Subordinate yourself under someone else. Now, that's, that's always difficult to hear because of our flesh, period, for any human being. However, it is very difficult today, extremely difficult to hear in our me-first, self-centered society. Yeah. Uh, we have, for all practical purposes, we have as a society thrown off the yoke of virtues, virtues uh, such as self-control, uh, duty, honor, sacrifice, respect, and we pander to our appetites. <laughs> we pander to the self. In fact, we're taught constantly by the culture that self-denial is harmful. Don't deny yourself, you know. Grab all the gusto. Don't let people oppress you. Self is Lord. Self is King. I, we keep talking about this because I want you to hear that. Self is the center of our universe. And so it's hard to talk about submission. But Scripture teaches that God has established patterns and spheres of authority. Uh, and it pleases Him when we submit ourselves to them. That's what Scripture teaches. Of course, another passage comes in mind, uh, all of, in most of your mind, would be Romans 13, Paul's own discussion of the same topic. Now, I don't want to expound everything Paul says because he hits on other points, but let's just hear what Paul says, and you may want to turn there if you can, uh, Romans 13. And you can hear the similarities, though, again, Paul makes some different points. 
Paul says, let every person, I'm in Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject, there's the verb, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. What is he saying immediately? He's saying there is only one source of intrinsic authority, and that's God, the, the sovereign God, the king. But he, uh, he has established, he has delegated authority, and he has established fears of authority. And not only that, but he has established the actual uh, individuals, the, the very ones who are in authority. They've been instituted by God, placed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. God has put the sword in the hand of the state, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Well, the Lord told you to submit. So if you want a clear conscience, submit. For because of this, you pay taxes. Yikes, some of us are thinking. Is this in the Bible? Yes, you haven't read this yet. Uh, you should hear what Jesus says. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed? Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So you hear there the sort of the same echoes of the things that, that Peter is saying in the writings of Paul. God has established authorities, and he's established the authorities. He's placed them there. He is the only one who really is, who, who uh, intrinsically possesses authority. All other authority is derived from God, and it's delegated, be it, uh, in government, be it uh, in the family, and so forth. And this is not just to the fact that there is sin in the world. Uh, for there is, uh, there is hierarchy among the unfallen angels. You find that in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and Jude 9. Hierarchy, structures, uh, submission. And there is also uh, what we would call functional submission among the persons of the Holy Trinity, Without going deep into that concept, in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, Paul says, uh, I'm getting the wrong passage here. Here we are. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God, a reference to the Father. Uh, the Father sends, the Son goes. The Father tells, the Son speaks, and so forth. We may call that a sort of economic um, submission, uh, subordination in the Trinity. So it's not just because there's sin that there is structure uh, uh, of authority and hierarchy and so forth. And of course, our greatest example, we're back to our Lord Jesus, who here is the eternal Son of God in the flesh, God incarnate. And Luke chapter 251 tells us that as a, as a young child, he submitted himself to his fallen, <laughs> sinful fallible human parents, Joseph and Mary. So the meaning of the word submission, align yourself underneath, subordinate yourself underneath in rank others that God has placed in that position. Now, what is the extent? What is the extent? He, Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, every human institution institution. Now, one minor point, the word institution is actually creature or creation, and it's used exclusively of, of what God creates. But what he's saying uh, is, is there are human uh, creations. I'll tell you why I think he uses that term. But human institutions, wherever they exist, every one of them, I want you to submit to them. In other words, this is his general overarching principle here. That uh, doesn't just happen in government. It happens maybe in the military. It happens in, 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 
education. It happens in the church. Whatever human institutions you see that you may see, I want you to submit yourselves to those who are in authority in those human institutions. Uh, that's the overarching principle. But he is speaking, first of all, of what? Governments relating to the state. He tells us that because he says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, that is, sent by the emperor. In other words, he's saying to the supreme ones in power, but also all the ones who are sent by those in the highest authority. Uh, in their case, could be proconsuls, governors, and so forth. All of them, he says. Uh, and so we would say that this applies to, uh, that's who he had in mind, right, in the Roman Empire. Uh, but this applies to, we would say, all levels of government, uh, all departments, uh, uh, and all types of governments, be they a royalty where there's a king, be a, co a communist nation, or be it a socialist nation, be it a uh, constitutional representative republic, such as our own, and so forth. And why is that? Why is that the case for the people of God? He just said, I've made you a holy nation. You are a people for God's own, own possession. Why? Why? Because the people of God have gone through a massive transformation in the history of salvation. The people of God are no longer a theocracy living under the rule of God in heaven, no longer the nation of Israel, a city-state, and so forth. We are what? We are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we live under all sorts of different governments all across this globe, you see, and all across the centuries as well. Now, Peter, nor is Paul, neither of them are implying that all governments are good or do what God means for them to do. We all know that, do we not? I should get a louder amen from you for that. I mean, I, I'm giving you that one. Okay. <laughs> they are all flawed. <laughs> they are flawed and undeserving. They do not always do what God has designed for them to do. But I think the Part of the point, biblically speaking, is I agree with Mark Dever here who serves in, in, uh, in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Pastor Mark Dever says, almost, hear him carefully, almost any government is better than no government. <laughs> and why is that? Because where there is no authority, where the authority structures that God has established break down, that vacuum gets filled immediately immediately with all sorts of mayhem and violence and murder we have we have believers in this in this church who come from african nations where this where they they could tell you the stories of what happens when there's a vacuum of power and authority the killing that goes on and to a lesser degree we experience that as well in our own nation in cities where uh, the role of police are, are are minimized and so forth crime just goes skyrockets. Governments, listen, governments established by God are part of His common grace to a fallen humanity to resist the flood of sin and evil that is in the world, to be like a dam that resists and holds back some of this evil, to punish evildoers. And what Peter says here, something may, maybe we're not as familiar with, to also to praise those who do good. There's supposed to be a positive side to what government does. We're not as used to government praising those who do good, I don't think, are we? Uh, but there are, there are examples. I was going through my, um, going through my dad's stuff, you know. It's, it's that time when we're starting to pack things up and, you know, sort of close that chapter more. It's been a year. Going through my dad's stuff, I'm reminded there I came across this certificate of appreciation that was given to him uh, when, as a young man, he uh, was driving a Highway 580, and he saw a police officer wrestling a man to the ground and, being, and, and finding it difficult, and the man was escaping and running up the ivy on the side of the hill there on, on Highway 580, and Dad pulled over and started running after this guy with the police officer and helped tackle him down, <laughs> you know? And he has forever kept in this nice binder <laughs> this certificate of appreciation for the good deed. It said they're in risking himself for the sake of the officer. That's one of the roles of government, to uh, acknowledge and praise those who do good. They may come less than we think, but it's part of what it's supposed to do. 
there's a plaque in our church here. I can't remember anywhere we put it. It might be in Fellowship Hall. I can't remember where it is. It's a plaque from the city of Pleasant Hill right across the street. And it says what? This is an appreciation, an expression of gratitude for how you, the church, uh, Grace Bible Church, have contributed to the city's well-being in some of the things that we've done. So that is part of what government is there for. And we are to submit to government whether or not they're good at what they do. Now, if you struggle to hear this exhortation, given our political climate, and I understand the political climate right now is very heated. If you struggle to hear this exhortation, I want you to remember the context in which Peter was writing and his first readers would have heard it. Hmm. They wouldn't have a, 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 a voting booth uh, to go to the next week, you know. When he wrote this, this was toward the very beginning of Nero's reign, this sensual, this vicious uh, ruler. And uh, first century Roman government was tremendously corrupt. Yes, they had trials and representation and so forth. We patterned many things after them, but bribery was the way you, <laughs> you made your way through a trial. You know, you got the verdict you wanted by paying what you paid to whom you paid. You would buy your verdict. And, and very soon, under Nero, these people would suffer state-sponsored persecution. And so uh, if you struggle with this and you're, you're, you're sort of cringing where you're seated, remember who these people were and the kind of things they suffered uh, before you complain. Uh, be grateful we have a voice where we can speak our opinion in the public square. Um, and so what is Peter's point? He's saying, though we are citizens of heaven, the children of God, and we have a, a king to whom we owe our ultimate allegiance, we are to be, to sum it up, good citizens here in the city of man and to be recognized as those who submit themselves to governing authorities. Let me say it again. Let it sink in. Be recognized as those who submit themselves to the civil authorities. Recognize that way. Now, some of you are just itching for me to, to, to mention the limitations, right? But aren't there limitations? <laughs> I'm delaying. I'm delaying purposely. Why? Because I want you to feel the weight of this from how they would have felt it. Submit yourself to Nero, to a bloodthirsty, vicious, sensual man who will soon burn you at the stake, you see. Submit yourself. Feel that weight and then understand that, yes, there are limitations. And What are they? Well, this man Peter tells us himself right in the book of Acts. What, well, our ultimate allegiance is to the higher authority, right? We recognize a higher authority behind all these other fallen human authorities, and whenever uh, what these uh, lesser authorities tell us to do goes against what the higher authority has told us to do, then we must not submit, or whenever these authorities prevent us from doing what the higher authority tells us we must certainly do, once again, we must obey the higher authority and not submit. Uh, but you should feel the weight of these things. So, yes, there are limitations, and there are examples of this all throughout Scripture, right? In Acts chapter 4 and 5, Peter and the others were told, stop preaching in this name of Jesus. Stop preaching in his name. And he said, you're going to have to decide for yourselves whether it's better to obey God or man. And he says, but we, what? We must obey God, right? That was his argument. And there's other examples in the Bible. In the book of Genesis, the Hebrew midwives. The Hebrew midwives were told by Pharaoh to, to kill, to murder the, the male infants that were being born, and they did not choose to do so. Uh, in the book of Daniel, we have Daniel's three friends. They were, they were told to bow to the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, and they did not. They, they said they could not do that. Daniel himself, in Daniel chapter 6, was told that he could no longer pray to any other god besides Nebuchadnezzar, and he did not obey that. He immediately went into his upper room and opened up his window, and he bowed down and prayed. So, yes, of course, there are limitations, but when you think of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, I want you to also think of Daniel in the rest of the book and how he became 
a very important, useful, productive uh, member of the highest points of government in that ancient world, you see. He was to Nebuchadnezzar just a, a tremendous, priceless uh, instrument. But he also kept his integrity. So the meaning of submission, the extent of submission, thirdly, the motive of submission. We're moving right through this, see, aren't we? Okay. The motive of submission. What's he say there in verse 13? He says, be subject, here it is, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For the Lord's sake. You have to hear that. And the Lord there, I'm convinced, is Christ. He's speaking of for, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what grounds our submission, beloved. And we mustn't miss this. We can't miss this because that we'll be tempted to move off, you know. What ought to motivate us to submit to civil authorities is simply this, our devotion to the Lord for the Lord's sake. That's it. That's it. Not because of how correct the political ideology is. Not because how ethical the people in authority are. Not because how well they govern. Not because how sensible the laws are that they pass. But for the Lord's sake, you see. And so we must understand what he's saying. There, listen, there are people who give their allegiance. They give their allegiance to all sorts of political parties, movements, figures, ideologies, and other human institutions, but they do these things not for the Lord's sake, you see. Not for the sake of Christ. They do that because they uh, either embrace some of that ideology or they see some good in it for themselves and there are others who give allegiance solely to avoid punishment, which is, well, that is part of a motive that the Scriptures give us back in Romans 13, for example. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. This is explicitly a Christian motivation. This is explicitly a gospel motivation in this present age for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourselves. See, Hear the weight on that, please. For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is at stake. The Lord Jesus Christ, for His sake, submit yourself. So what does it mean, for the Lord's sake? It may mean one of two primary things, and not necessarily mutually exclusive. For the Lord's sake may mean, well, because the Lord is behind all human authority. The Lord established the human authority. You're submitting to Him. You see, He has created these structures. He's placed them in power for His purposes. And it's, it's out of loyalty to Him that we would say that. In other words, as if you're saying to a public official, I will submit to you, Mr. Governor, but not because uh, out of loyalty to you, not because of how, how good you are, not because of how sensible you are. I will submit to you because of God, because He has placed you where you are, and He tells me to submit to you, you see. And so it could be something along those lines, you know. They have... They don't have any intrinsic authority. It's all derived. It's all derived and given from above. Just like uh, Jesus told Pilate. You know, when Pilate says, Don't you afraid of me? He says, You have no authority over me if it wasn't given to you from above. You think you're special? You, know? you exercise authority because somebody put you there and you'll soon be gone. I mean, and so for the Lord's sake may mean that. Uh, or it may mean it may mean focusing more on our Lord Jesus Christ out of concern for the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ, out of, out of concern for the gospel, out of concern for what we're supposed to be doing in the present age, building the church, uh, the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God, so as not to dishonor uh, the gospel, not to bring unnecessary attacks and obstacles to the gospel by just being people that uh, refuse to submit and respect and so forth. So which of these is it? What is for the Lord's sake? For the Lord's sake, submit yourself. Well, both views are acceptable because they're both scriptural and they're found in different places. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. It's a, it's a both and here to some degree. But listen, 
whichever one you might have primarily in your mind, I tell you this, unless you see the Lord ultimately behind all human authority and that you're submitting to him, or unless you see that what is at stake is the reputation of your Savior and the good of the gospel, if you don't see either of those or both of those, it is going to be hard to submit yourself. Because all, all authorities in between you and God are fallen, frail, and sometimes very corrupt people. <clears throat> and so you need, to, you need to begin to grasp that if you haven't already, you see. And it's part of understanding God's sovereignty and what's happening, what he's doing in the world. God has much bigger plans than you are imagining, you see. Uh, we should hear the words of Paul to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4, Paul says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why, Paul? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You see, for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of of the Lord. Why do we need to do that? Well, this is good. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved uh, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's at stake? The gospel's at stake. It's good to, to live like this, and it's good to pray for them, and so forth. And you hear why? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Uh, so some of you, I think, are going to have to, when you feel that aggression rising up in your American spirit, you're going to have to say to yourself, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, and uh, at least begin to move in that direction. Begin to move in that direction, direction uh, and submit to the reality that God knows, get this, knows what he's doing. Wow. <laughs> he knows better than me? Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous thing. He knows what he's doing. The purpose of submission, to what end? Well, there's many things we've mentioned, and I'll just stay here with Peter, just see what Peter's getting at. In other words, to what end? Verse 15 now, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, the question here is, how is that preposition for fitting what's written here? especially when one looks at it in the original text, is, is it retrospective? In other words, does it reach backwards or is it prospective? Does it reach forward? If it's, if it's retrospective, and I think it's mostly retrospective because mo this, the use of this preposition in Peter is almost constantly retrospective. So, in other words, what Peter is saying is, I want you to submit yourself to, uh, to all human institutions for this is the will of God, and he intends through this uh, to have you silence the, 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 the ignorance of these foolish people. Did you hear how that flows, right? And so it, it, it flows from, I want you to submit yourselves because this is the will of God, and he aims to silence the, fool, uh, the ignorance of of these foolish people who are attacking you. And you, uh, you, we, we silence them, how? By removing gra uh, the grounds of real, real animosity because of our good deeds, uh, the way we live our lives. Uh, the word here uh, to, to silence, put to silence, the ignorance of foolish people, the verb to put to silence is the word to muzzle like the muzzle you put on a dog, you know? Uh, you put on uh, some of our police dogs over the years when we had to take him to uh, the vet or somewhere where we were concerned that he was going to lose his patience and self-control. We would put a muzzle. And when you muzzle a dog, they can't, they, can't, uh, they can't bark. And that's what he's talking about. The world's barking at you. And it's going to accuse you because you are, you are different now. What do you say in verse 12? This is what he has in mind. They will speak against you as evildoers. That's what they're going to call you, evil, because of what you do, what you believe. And there was a time not too long ago, just even a couple decades ago, we would thought, well, who's going to ever really think that this is wrong or this is bad? Hey, it's calm, hasn't it? 
Nuclear families are out. What are you? What are you thinking? That's oppressive, you know. Well, yeah, that's where we're at. So we're the evildoers now, according to the culture and where it's heading. And that's what was happening then. He says, God aims to silence uh, the ignorance of these foolish people. Foolish because they don't have faith. And he'll do so in part by your you're doing good in their very presence. And remember, this doing good must be the kind of doing good that even a fallen human government could praise and a doing good that fallen people, unbelieving people, could recognize. And though there's, things are going topsy-turvy, I mentioned last week, even the world and, and still recognizes concepts such as sacrifice and compassion and mercy and, and all these sorts of things they, as good. That's good. They may not see the connection uh, between all these things and, and the Lord, but there are ways they still recognize it as good. Like it would happen in the situation of my dad, his placing himself in danger was recognized by governing officials as a good thing. You see. And so here's, the, here's what he's getting at. It's harder to attack people who on most counts are seen as good citizens because of the way they live and how they treat other people, to live godly lives in society, see, uh, we may silence to some degree all sorts of foolish, ignorant accusations, and it may even bring some to defend you. Uh, I, even, I saw that take place one time on this news debate. This was about a year and a half ago or more or so, and uh, Christians as general, it's, meaning in general, Christians as a voting block were being attacked by this one individual. And, uh, you know, it was all ad hominem attacks, just attacking our characters and so forth. And another individual on this panel who is not a believer by any sort says, that's just not true, man. That's just not true. It's not all like that. They may, they may think this way about this issue here, but I, I've lived with many Christians in my life, and these these people, and he went on to talk about mercy, compassion, and love, and, and so forth. Yeah. It, 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 brought, it brought that person to actually defend the Christian worldview for a moment there anyways. And then they went off again, you know. So what kind of, let me ask you, just reflect for a moment. I'm going to move on. What, what, what kind of reactions do you tend to bring out of others, particularly unbelievers I'm talking about what kind of reactions do you tend to bring out any recognition of the goodness uh, that reflects the character of the Lord Jesus you see that's that's the aim here that's what he's talking about as aliens and sojourners understanding that our role in this world partly is this now fifthly the manner of submission look at verse 16 he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, I want to say that the verb live is actually not present in the original language. There is no verb here. The verb needs to be supplied. So if you have a New American Standard, they supplied the, ver the, the, the verb act, act as free men or free people. ESV, live as free people. Uh, the King James, at this point, stayed more literal, and they just say, as free. There is no verb. As free. And so what is the verb? The, it's the, the main verb remains, which is what? Subject, submit yourself. As free, you see. Submit yourself, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, as free people and the second main as here is as servants of God so we are free servants servants of God who are free and as free people as the servants of God we submit ourselves to governing authorities to say that we're free he's speaking about a spiritual status not a political status per se he's Christians have been set free from the darkness and blindness of sin uh, and unbelief. We've been set free from sin's guilt and sin's mastery over our lives. As Paul says, we have died to sin now, and we are alive to God. And so what he's saying is you submit yourselves not because you're being coerced, 
Not because you're being coerced, not out of weakness, not because you're a doormat. You are God's free people. As free people, submit yourselves. God wants you to remain in this context and choose to freely submit yourselves. You serve him, but this is what he wants of you. And I think a clear, clear example would be an early teaching of this and maybe I'm thinking Peter remembers this. So much of what Peter says, I, I think, reflects on interactions with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17, uh, there's this moment, uh, and the temple tax is coming up in verse 24 through 27. Listen to this interchange here that Matthew records that took place between Jesus and our author, Peter. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and, says, and said, Does your teacher not pay the taxes? Is Jesus above the law? <laughs> Will Jesus pay the taxes? You hear what they're saying? And he said, Peter says, Yes. And when he came into the house, in other words, I better go ask the Lord. I already said yes. <laughs> This is Peter, guys, right? <laughs> so he goes into the house, and notice what it says. This is how Matthew recorded it. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. <laughs> so before Peter could open his mouth, uh, the Lord Jesus said, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? In other words, who do the kings take taxes from? Their children, the princes and the princesses, or the, you know, the, the, the people, the common folk? And that's what he asked Peter, and Peter said, from others. He's like, <laughs> from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Yeah, the sons are free. However, not to give offense, says the Lord. Not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when it opens its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. We're free. We're the sons of the king. But so as not to give offense, we submit ourselves. We trust God and what he's, what he's doing and submit ourselves to what he's asking us to do. And so we don't use our freedom as a cover-up for evil, as Peter says here. You know, there's a perversion of Christian freedom that takes the fact that we're the sons of God and we're free, that takes it too far. We've been set free from sin's guilt, and they use that as a cloak or a pretext to go on sinning and do what they want, you know. Uh, but that's not uh, Christian freedom. We, to, be, uh, to be set free as Christians is to be set free to serve a new Lord, a new master. The right master, not no master. And the right master is whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the Lord Jesus Christ to tell us? To not offend them, go pay your tax, you see. So in submitting to the lesser officials, we are submitting to the higher authority. And we are honoring him as servants of God, that is, right? We have the right master in the world, and he sets us, sends us into the world to do this. So Christian, listen, you are a child of God. You are the free citizens of the king of kings, citizens of heaven, and you are also servants of this God sent into the world, the world, the world of uh, civil society, the world of commerce, the world of education, the world of, of government, wherever you may be, in order to do good, not give needless offense that others might see and may glorify God, you say. That is being the salt and light in the world, you say. But I will be treated unjustly. To this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Where is he now? Glory. But 
First was the cross. No cross, no crown. And so it is for us. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. Bids me come and die and find that I may truly live by submitting to the king and watching him work, watching him work in your life and do amazing things. The first time I came across this principle to apply my life as a Christian, the new Christian, was like within months of being born again. I've shared this maybe only once or twice over the 27 years here. I remembered suddenly in a band rehearsal that all these several things in this room I had stolen as a young man. I had not submitted myself to the authority of the boss or the owner of this music store that I was working to working for and I actually found ways to cleverly steal some of these things and these principles just kept coming back to me oh but I will be mistreated I may go to jail for this bids me come and die and find that I may truly live so I wrestled with this eventually I went in to see the man and I had a list. I printed out, oh my gosh, it was so much stuff, I had a list, you know. <laughs> and I printed out and I put it across. He had retired, but his son was now running the store. I knew him too. And, and that's when I told him, I said, I just came to tell you something that, oh, there's a group of people who have been stealing from your store. I was one of them. I kind of came up with how to do this to use, using the computer and all that. And I'm here to confess to you that I, uh, this is a list of the things I took from you and I stole from you. And he looks at it and reads it and he says, <laughs> why are you telling me this? Said, well, a few months ago I became a Christian. I just, God saved me and I can't live with this in my conscience. I just, he just stares at me. Felt like an hour, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he just said, I'll tell you what, bring all the, you still have this? I said, some of it. <laughs> I said, well, Bring what you got back, but then you tell me how it is you came up with this way of doing it and help me catch these other thieves. And You're fine. I forgive you. That wasn't one of those moments where I was going to suffer unjustly. That's not at all. In fact, had he punished me, what would that have been? Suffering justly, <laughs> right? So, beloved... Lastly, we have the recap of submission. I had no other better word for verse 17. I'm trying to figure out, what was he doing? I think what he's doing, he's saying, verse 17, I think Peter's saying this. Look, what I'm saying is this. Let me put it here in four quick successive imperatives. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He says, that's what I'm getting at. And it applies everywhere. Honor everyone. Everyone? Even bad people? Uh, show honor. What, what, how could that be? Well, James tells us that we should not curse people because they're made in the image of God. They're image bearers. They're human beings. We should show them, when he says honor, he means the, we should show them the dignity of being a human being and treat all human beings with that sort of dignity. Uh, for being created by, by the Lord. You know, this is, as it's called here in our country, the Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? We view, we, we view all human life with dignity, including the life of, of the unborn. And I think at times that uh, our voice regarding the sanctity of the, uh, the life of the unborn may be heard better when we treat all human life with dignity including those who oppose us. And we don't, we don't come down to their level of how they treat people. But we stay on that high ground. So, yes, honor everyone as fellow human beings. Writing to Titus, Paul says in Titus 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Listen to this. To speak evil of no one. 
Wow, you think that would change some of the tenor of public discourse and political debate? And this is Christians to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people, for we ourselves, listen to this, you want to root this in something? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He may save them. He may save them. To this day, I wonder, did the Lord ever reach in to the life of the owner of Music Unlimited. Hmm. I shared the gospel with him that day. I don't know. I hope to meet him in heaven. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. We are to love our neighbor, even love our enemies, but there's a special love for the brotherhood. Our fellow aliens, fellow exiles, fellow sojourners, man, we need each other, and we need each other even more in this culture, guys. We need to lean on each other. We need each other's prayers, each other's help, each other's word coming to us, the words of grace and uh, each other's sacrifice. We need each other to to get all through this, right? Fear God, he says. God is to be honored like everyone else, absolutely. But beyond the honor you would give to human beings, beyond the dignity they have, God is to be feared, you see. We serve God with awe and with with reverence. Why? He alone can forgive sins. Clear the slate. And he alone can cast into hell. As Jesus said, others may kill us, but only God can cast into hell. So we fear him, we revere him, and finally he says, honor the king. In other words, in addition to the dignity that we owe all human beings for being created in the image of God, those whom God places in supreme positions, uh, we should speak about or treat with some due respect even when they are wrong. And you say, is there another example in scripture? I need more, Tony. If you're going to convince me, give me one more. How about Paul in the book of Acts when he stood before uh, the the Jewish council, the the authority of the Jewish nation, of which Paul was a part, in Acts chapter 23, and he's standing there in front of them, looking intently at the council. Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, here's the official, the high priest and Ananias commanded that those who stood by him strike him in the mouth. Punch that guy in the mouth, they said. And then Paul said to him, I could see him just holding his mouth and going, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That sounds, that sounds like vaguely familiar to political radio today to me. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by Paul said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said immediately, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He took it back. Boy, what would that do to public discourse? Well, certainly it should do something among us and bring the heat down among us when we talk about what's happening in our political moment, beloved. Peter did not place God on the same plane as all the others here in the end, did he not? No. Fear, honor, and love are three different words that mean three different things. And only God is to be feared. Honor may be shown to others, but only God may be feared. And you know, this was something that was going to become very important for them in just a few years. Emperor worship was a cult that was starting to bubble up at the time that Peter wrote this. Many were practicing it, but it was not yet official uh, doctrine, if you put it that way. And soon the church would be confronted with this. 
a demand, a law in the Roman Empire, worship Caesar as Lord. And they would need to know the distinction that worship only belongs to God. Honor belongs to the emperor. There's a distinction. And for some, it would mean life and death, you see. The emperor's not to be worshipped. He's not the Lord. And that might be, to get back to verse 13, why he used the word creature there. Subject yourself to every human creature, creation. Why? I think he might have been subtly hinting, the emperor is to be honored, but he's just a creature like everyone else. <laughs> he's not to be worshipped. And I fear, in our own day and age, among us, among Christians, sometimes I fear Devotion to political personalities, uh, ideologies have come close to worship and idolatry because people are willing to sin in order to obtain those or be right with those. And hence, they offend the God they should be worshiping. 